0: Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response isn't owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I being born and raised in these mountains know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or in some cases more right the history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends, and lend me your ears again as I tell you the true tale of what happened in Matewan, West Virginia on May 19th, 1920. Deep in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Mingo County in West Virginia, at the confluence of the Tug Fort River and Mate Creek, near the Kentucky border sits a small town called Mate One. The town was named after Matawan, which is a town in Dutchess County in upstate New York. Matawan was the home of Erskine Hazard, a civil engineer from the Norfolk and Western Railway who laid out the town of Matawan in 1890. He drew up the first map of the new community. Local residents, however, changed the spelling and pronunciation to Matewan, and, yes, some of the famous Hatfield and McCoy feud took place in Matewan. one. Now West Virginia back in the early 1900s much as it is now was coal country. The coal industry then was pretty much the only source of work and a huge companies built homes, general stores, schools and churches in the remote Appalachian towns near their mines. They owned them and as long as you worked in the mines you could live there. Of course, for a nominal fee. Now, you've heard me refer to company stores and company towns in previous episodes. For miners, the company system was pretty much an act of futility. Your items from the company stores came out of your salary. The stores would extend credit to the miners, locking them into pretty much working for nothing in some cases. Clean living conditions in the company houses just didn't exist. The wages were pitifully low and of course most politicians, knowing on which side the bread was buttered, supported wealthy coal company owners rather than miners. The problems ran rampant for decades and only began to get a little bit better with the passing of the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1933. The miners had tried over and over again to organize in unions in an attempt to try to improve their conditions, but the companies were known for firing men for the mere mention of the word union. They would also send in men known as guards who doled out daily beatings and actually arrested union organizers. These men were known as strikebreakers to the mountain people. The companies would also increase wages in the nick of time to undercut the organization drive, while they ran a systematic campaign of terror in which violence was pretty much a daily event. The mine guards of the Baldwin-Felch Detective Agency repeatedly shut down miners' attempts to organize with everything from drive-by assaults of striking miners to forcing men, women, and children out of their homes for nothing more than being seen in the presence of a union organizer. Didn't matter whether they were for them or against them. And yes, there were a good number of people who were against them. The combination of dangerous working conditions and minor guard tensions led to the massive strike in 1912 in southern West Virginia. After five months, Things came to a head when 6,000 Union miners declared their intention to kill company guards and destroy company equipment. That's when the state militia was called in and they seized 1,872 high-powered rifles, 556 pistols, 225,000 rounds of ammunition, along with daggers, bayonets, and brass knuckles from both the miners and the strikebreakers. It was then that World War I distracted union organizers and coal companies from their feud, but the fight picked right back up again after the war. Following World War I, there was an increasing concentration of fewer hands of industrial corporate power. In other words, some companies went broke and were bought out by the big ones. Unions were against them because human labor was one of the few cost items that would be manipulated and lowered in order to increase the profit margin. As the rich miners got richer, union organized strikes became a way of life for miners to try to protect their salaries and stand for safe working conditions. Leaders like John L. Lewis, the head of the United Mine Workers of America, insisted that strikers strength came through collective action. In one successful protest, 400,000 UMW members went on strike nationwide in 1919, securing higher wages and better working conditions. But while wages generally increased for miners throughout the period, they tended to rise more slowly in non-union areas, and the union itself struggled throughout the 1920s. To the companies, it was a battle for profit and against what they saw as plain old-fashioned communism. To the workers, it was a fight for their rights as human beings. The two sides came to a head in a conflict in Matewan, West Virginia, in response to a massive UMW organizing effort in the area. Local mining companies forced miners to sign yellow dog contracts that bound them to never join a union or they'd be fired. Now, yellow dog contracts were used mostly widely in the United States in the 1920s, and it enabled employers to take legal action against union organizers for encouraging workers to break the contracts. In 1932, the government decided that the companies would be allowed to interfere with workers' right to organize, as the Norris LaGuardia Act made yellow dog contracts unenforceable. On May 19, 1920, at 11.14 a.m., Albert C. Feltz, superintendent of the baldwin Phelps Detective Agency, stepped off a passenger train in Mate 1, West Virginia. Accompanied by 11 private detectives, he was there to serve eviction notices to striking miners at the Stone Mountain Coal Company. It was a normal day on the job for these agents. The detective agency... Founded in the 1890s, provided law enforcement contractors for railroad yards and other corporations. And, well, as you'll remember from the shootout in Hillsville episode, it was the Baldwin-Felts detective agencies who rounded up the outlands after the shootout. Baldwin-Felts also did the brunt of the work suppressing unionization in coal mining towns, and today... The Baldwin Phelps men were there to kick out men who had joined the UMW. Just one of the benefits of being the company that owned the town. If you could evict somebody who held their mouths wrong, I guess. That same day, the town of Matewan was teeming with a number of unemployed miners who came to receive a few dollars, of sacks of flour, and other food from the union to prevent their families from starving to death. Miners had the rare support of Pro-Union Mate 1 Police Chief Sid Hatfield and the town's mayor, Cable Testerman. They were behind the banners 100%. And yes, Chief Hatfield was the nephew of none other than William Anderson Devil Ants Hatfield, one of the heads of the Hatfield-McCoy feud. According to one version of the history, the baldwin Phelps detectives tried to arrest Chief Hatfield when he attempted to prevent the evictions of taking place of the, all the families there. When the mayor defended Chief Hatfield from the arrest, he was shot, and that's when it started raining lead. In another version of story, Chief Hatfield started the whole thing, either by giving a signal to armed miners stationed around the town or by firing the first shot himself. In the actual chain of events, according to MateOneMythDebunk.com, Sid Hatfield, the chief of police of Mate One, orchestrated premeditated mass murder on collusion with pro-union officials and county law enforcement. On the telephone a half hour before the shootings, Sid Hatfield told Tony Webb, the chief deputy of Mingo County Sheriff's Department, that they would kill all the son of a bitches if they left town. And... Set a trap for the detectives at the Chambers Hardware Store and snipers posted in the upper stories of the buildings on the stories and uh, uh, streets along the railroad tracks. Never suspecting the absolute deadly intent of the chief of police and the armed multitude of miners in the mining town, the detectives walked into a trap, totally unsuspecting the consequences. Other than Three detectives that had permits to carry pistols, all of the detectives were defenseless as they had been instructed by A.C. Feltz to dismantle their rifles and stow them in their luggage before leaving the hotel and setting out for Mate One Depot to catch the evening train out of town. Lured to the hardware store, Hatfield stepped inside the store as Feltz talked to the Mayor testament in the doorway. Without warning, Hatfield pulled his pistol and shot Felts in the left temple, instantly killing him. At this signal, the Wonton killing of detectives began. Hatfield would later lament that it was a shame they didn't kill all twelve detectives instead of just seven. Those people killed were C.C. Testerman, Mayor of Mate Juan, Bob Mullis, and Todd Tinsley, both minors. Albert Feltz and Lee Feltz, brothers of the detective firm Baldwin's Feltz, C.B. Cunningham, C.T. Higgins, A.J. Boer, E.O. Powell, and J.W. Ferguson, all of the Baldwin Feltz agency. Wounded citizens were Sam Arters, Isaac Brewer, Will Ryer, James Chambers, and Bill Bowman. Chief Hatfield would marry Mayor Testman's widow just 11 days later, adding fuel to the rumor that he had not just killed Albert Feltz, but he had also killed Mayor Testerman just for his wife's hand in marriage. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. I'm Larry Bentley. What made the situation worse? according to Wilma Steele, a founding member of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, was the contempt outsiders had for miners in the region. Locals had a reputation for being violent and unreasonable. It set the stereotype that they were used to feuding and that they were people who didn't care about anything but a gun and a bottle of liquor. And that was propaganda. These people were being abused. Revolting was the only way to respond to the abuse. If you got a mule killed in the mines and you were in charge, you could lose your job. If you got a man killed in the mines and you were in charge, well, he could be replaced. And that was the company attitude. Although Police Chief Hatfield was celebrated as a hero by the mining community after the shootout and even starred in a movie for the UMW, he was, however, a villain to T. L. Phelps, a Baldwin Feltz partner who lost two brothers in the massacre. When Chief Hatfield was acquitted in the local trial by jury, Feltz brought a conspiracy charge against him, forcing the police chief to appear in court all over again. Then on the stairway of the courthouse in august nineteen twenty one, Chief Hatfield and his deputy, Ed Chambers, were gunned down by Baldwin-Feltz agents. Both men had arrived at Welch on August 1, 1921, unarmed and accompanied by their wives. Several Baldwin-Feltz men shot him on the McDowell County courthouse steps, hit in the arm and three or four times in the chest, Chief Hatfield died instantly. Chambers was shot several more times and... As his wife tried to defend him, he was finished off with a bullet to the head by Detective Charles Everett Lively. None of the Baldwin Felt's detectives was ever convicted of Chief Hatfield's assassination. They claimed they acted in self-defense. To this day, the bullet marks from the assassins are visible in the sandstone stairs of the Courthouse. The gunfight on downtown Mate One in May 19th of 1920 had all the elements of a high noon showdown. On one hand, the heroes, a pro union sheriff and mayor, on the other hand the dastardly henchmen of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Within fifteen minutes, ten people were dead. We were seven detectives, two miners, and the mayor. Three months later, the conflict in the West Virginia coal town had escalated to the point where martial law had to be declared. The showdown may sound like it was made for a movie, but the reality of the coal miners' armed standoffs throughout the 20th century was much darker and more complicated than most people are aware of. The response to the assassination of the hero, Chief Hatfield, and his deputy well, in that response, an army of 10,000 miners began an all-out assault on the coal company and the mine guards. While miners shot at their opponents, private planes organized by coal Company's defensive militia dropped bleach and shrapnel bombs on the Union headquarters. The battle only stopped when federal troops arrived in the order of President Warren Harding to put the quietus on it all. The entire event was covered by the national press like it was the second sinking of the Titanic. National papers sold a lot of copies by portraying the area as a lawless land where mountaineers were inherently violent. And this was romanticized versions of creating an Old West type of image of the Appalachia. So I guess the Appalachians at that point were like the Wild West. This, of course, didn't help the miners any in their struggles. When the whole mess was over, hundreds of miners were indicted for murder, and more than a dozen were charged with treason. Exactly how that worked, I don't know, but they were. Although all but one were acquitted of treason charges, others were found guilty of various charges and spent years in prison. Even worse, the UMW experienced a significant decline in membership throughout the 1920s, and in 1924, the UMW district that included Mate 1 lost its local autonomy because of the incident. As the years progressed, the Union distanced itself from further from as it could get from Mate 1. The baldwin Phelps agents were professional men. They believed that they were fighting the onslaught of Communism their opponents were fighting to end the abuse. This fight between collectivism and individualism, the rights of workers and the rights of the owner, have been part of America since the country's founding and still exist even today. That battle still rages on, not with bullets but with eroding regulations and workers' rights. Well, that's, so says one historian... Though at first the federal government acted as a third-party broker, protecting union rights with bargaining regulations initiated by Franklin Roosevelt, workers' rights were eventually curtailed by more powerful people. Unions became so dependent on the federal labor laws that the National Labor Relations Board, and that they no longer lived and died by what the federal government would allow them to do. That was the beginning of the decline of the union power in this country. Another historian cites the failure of the Employee Free Choice Act to pass in Congress, which was aimed at removing barriers to unionization. The closure of the last union coal mine in Kentucky in 2015, the la- loss of retirement benefits, the former miners, and the surge of black lung disease as evidence of unions' fading power. These things they were fighting for, well, quote, in the Mate One Massacre, are the things that they're fighting for today, says Terry Steele. He's one of the miners who will be losing his health insurance and retirement plan in the wake of the employer's bankruptcy. The things our forefathers stood for are now being taken away from us, and it seems that we're starting to turn back the clock. Whether the miners were justified in their fight for or Baldwin-Felch detectives were writing their efforts. Well, that's probably left to history. Many people aren't aware this part of our history has become lost in time. I only know about this from my great-grandfather. He uh, gave me accounts because he worked for the N&W Railroad and was on the very train that drove into Mate 1 that day and placed him right in the middle of it all and he witnessed every bit of it. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Please go over to our Patreon page and at patreon.com and search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. Give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to join from, uh, including Mountain Boomer all, all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. Yeah, you got claw hammer in there too or you can go to facebook group and appalachian murder mystery and legend podcast where you can discuss anything from appalachian to whatever you want to talk about i'll be back soon with another appalachian murder mystery or legend please stick around thank you so much bye-bye